Typically, we've been reading the entire 12 verses attached to the Beatitudes to frame them as a whole. And maybe if you've been here along the way to remember some of the highlights, perhaps that stick out for each of these Beatitudes, we're going to be in verse 7 today. Uh, But let's go ahead and read the entire passage together. Uh, It's not too long, and I think it's very worth doing. Today, of course, is on those who are merciful, but it starts with Jesus speaking to uh, his disciples and crowds gathering around, and then he says this in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. So, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And it starts, of course by wondering what in the world mercy is all about. Now here's a prayer for you if you're, you're like me. It's nice to have sometimes some really simple uh, prayers that you just kind of feel unintimidating. And this is one of the prayers that I often pray. And maybe you've heard me say this before. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. That is a compilation of words that you find in the Gospels from people who are in a position of need when Jesus is passing by, and they're crying out to him, saying, have mercy on me. They're identifying him as the Messiah. That's a big word, saying the one who has come to save the people from their sins. He is identifying that he is the son of the living God, a God who continues to be alive and actually the son of God. And the cry of the heart then is to have mercy on me because he can do something about it. And the reason there's a need for mercy is because we're sinners. The result of our states, even because of our fallenness, if we have a physical need, is all because of sin. And so this compilation of some of these cries of people in need goes like that. This may be a prayer you're familiar with. It's actually one that people in the Eastern Orthodox tradition say with some regularity. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. It's a prayer that maybe for the past five years I've been saying with some regularity. And it goes through stages, but... Typically speaking, I will say this in a moment when I know that my normal and natural response is going to be very different unless I take a moment and say, God, have mercy on me. 
Either because I'm in a point of need or desperation. I've said this sometimes, you know, when I'm sick and I've, or I've got a migraine, I'm like, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy, have mercy. Or when I want to make a, a, a sharp reply to somebody to take a moment and say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy is directed to those who are miserable. It is shown to those who are in need. And it's related to grace, but it's different from it. We talk of grace as getting something we don't deserve, unmerited favor. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. There's a difference between that. Grace, getting something we don't deserve. Mercy, when we don't get what we do deserve. Have mercy on me. If you owe somebody a large sum of money and they come collecting and you don't have it, you know, maybe the TV shows back there with, with the, the mafia or something. They got the baseball bat and your kneecaps are coming next, right? They're coming to collect and you're like, have mercy on me. That's the idea behind mercy. The Greek, eleo, here incorporates both feelings when you have a feeling of compassion, but also action, doing something about it. Blessed are the merciful. So maybe it helps to think of mercy as grace in action to those in need. Perhaps that's a helpful definition for you. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom and to be blessed, to be merciful. It's grace in action. It's making tangible all the benefits that we've received to people who don't deserve it. And there are two sides to mercy, theologians tell us. One's compassion and the other is forgiveness. So imagine mercy being like a coin with two sides. Compassion toward others in need and forgiveness. Forgiveness toward those who have done something against us. Blessed are the compassionate. Blessed are the forgiving. If you claim Christ as your own then, compassion and forgiveness should typify you. That is it's something that is a mark of a kingdom citizen, not just because you're a great person, but because the gospel, the good news of Christ, is applied by the Spirit to work those qualities in your life, like Peter says, in increasing measure. And the coin itself really is the very mercy of God, the foundation, the substance for any compassion or forgiveness that we might display as well. You've seen examples of that, like even with some of the recent shootings in Charlotte, and people saying, I forgive you? How in the world do you do that? And they ground it in the forgiveness they've received from Christ. So they have compassion on the offender. That's not normal. It stands to reason that the degree to which you receive and understand the mercy of God that's been shown to you, to that degree you will know compassion for those in need and grant forgiveness to others. The extent to which we understand God's mercy for us, we've received it, we've walked in it, we've unpacked it, that's the extent to which we will be able to give it to others as well. You know, people who are not very compassionate, typically, are people who have not known compassion extended toward them. Or people who are unforgiving, haven't known the deep forgiveness which has been granted to them. And it's not self-generated. It flows from the mercy God's given us. Let's look at 
First side of the coin then just briefly, compassion leading us to help those in need. Now look, some of you are going to naturally excel at this because mercy is a spiritual gift. Romans chapter 12, 8. You're good at coming alongside those who are in need. God has put in you a supernatural capacity to have compassion for others. And for those people who don't have that gift, it's kind of a strange thing to observe because it doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's just natural because God's given you that gift. And so for those of you who already demonstrate and know compassion for those in need, okay, you don't need much in terms of considering what this looks like. It comes naturally. You can always grow in it, of course. But the, the beatitude is not blessed are those with the spiritual gift of mercy. It's blessed are the merciful. Christ is stating here compassionate mercy is the hallmark of a believer. In fact, one of the tests of being a follower of Christ is a life lived out in acts of compassion. True mercy demands action. You know, compassion, true compassion. It's not just a, a fuzzy feeling about somebody. It leads you to do something. And that's what's hard, too, I think, when we're compassionate individuals. We feel like sometimes we just can't do enough or can't get there. And that's understandable. We're limited in our resources. We're human. If you're a pastor and you have the gift of mercy, it can be very difficult because you look out and see all the needs that are there, and you can almost enter into sort of a messianic complex where your desire is to meet everybody's needs. And the problem is you can't. You're limited by space and time. You have other commitments. And, of course, one of the reasons that's the case is because you're not Jesus. You can't meet everybody's needs in that way. This is one of the opportunities that pastors have to be in relationship with others. Limited needs, I mean limited capacity, and it's hard to recognize that if you're a person who naturally has a gift of mercy. The needs are overwhelming. It's just, it's totally overwhelming. I have the gift of mercy. It's been a real problem in my life. For example, I worked at Teen Challenge, which was a, men, for, uh, a ministry to men struggling with drug addictions. We used to live off Queen City Avenue, off, uh, take the Harrison exit off 75 on the west side of Cincinnati. And a little, little rougher community, but um, I, the very first day that I worked at Teen Challenge, one of the men dropped out of the program. Now, this is something that was new to me. But I saw that he had a need because he came to me and said, I have no way to get home. Um, I, I live in, I think it was Tennessee or something. So this was the very first day after our honeymoon when we were in our one-bedroom apartment. And I said, oh, well, you need a place to stay. And you need someone to buy you a ticket. So I took him home <clears throat> and bought him a Greyhound ticket. Um, and that night at about 2 a.m., we had this man who I didn't know at all, who was leaving this drug rehab program, walking through our bedroom to go to the bathroom on the first night of our wedding, uh, of our, our marriage experience. Well, come to find out, I wasn't supposed to be bringing these guys home with, with me. Like, I didn't understand that was something that they had set boundaries around, and I wasn't supposed to do that. 
But it was very hard for me working with men who were struggling with substance abuse because they're con artists. I mean, they're just, they, they, it, it's so hard. I'm, I score very high on mercy and very low on discernment. That's a train wreck for, for somebody because I just trust everybody's got is saying what they, you know, is being on the up and up and everything. So those were tough years, especially early on in our marriage. But, but the demonstration of a desire to help those in need, well, that's a good thing. But what does that really look like? For some of you, you're never moved to action. It could be, I want to speak a word of comfort to those who are naturally have mercy. You know, you're probably going to listen to a message like this and feel like, I've got to do more. No, you don't. You probably don't. But for some of you, you're not doing anything. You, you're not entering into the, the compassionate opportunities to help those in need right in your midst. True mercy demands action. And James says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You've got to make a choice between judging or, or exact, you know, executing a just punishment or mercy. Let mercy triumph. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. The parable, the Good Samaritan, something you're probably familiar with, you know. Who, who is, how do I get justified? How am I made right with God? And uh, Jesus tells this parable, this story of people in the society in the day and age who would be the religious leaders, the, the morally good individuals who just leave somebody beaten up on the side of the road. But the Samaritan, the person who um, they look down on, is the one who comes alongside and offers assistance. And Jesus concludes by saying, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, L-O, the same Greek word. The one who gave him what he did not deserve, or didn't give him what he did deserve. Bottom line, see a need, ask if you can meet it, then act on it. And all kinds of questions can circle around us if we try to live this out. Boundaries. What about boundaries of time? What about my family? What about safety? What about financial obligations? Does this needy person deserve to be shown mercy? And to what degree? Would I really be helping or am I simply enabling a, a, a process of ongoing where this person really does need to learn how to provide for his or her own family? Am I being taken advantage of? Those are all great questions. Just uh, three thoughts on that. Uh, number one, thank goodness God didn't ask those kinds of questions about us. Do you deserve, did, are you worth it? <laughs> are you worth the time and the effort? Are you, are you, you know, God saying that, is this person going to take advantage of me? Thank goodness that God's more merciful than we tend to be in that respect. Number two, Another thing to consider. Most of us could stand to err on the side of more reckless compassion 
That's my observation. Now, that's a person who's got the gift of mercy. So I realize that I'm looking at things differently. But my general conclusion is we often say no because I'm not going to be merciful because A, B, C, D. And yet, at the same time, the, the third comment I would make is wisdom has a role in everything. We, we, we read this even in Psalm 51, and we, we were singing about it in Psalm 90, the value of wisdom, knowledge rightly applied. A lot of these things take wisdom, God's wisdom. I mean, James talks about that as well. Ask for wisdom. We often don't know how to act or what to do, so let's pray for it. And we desperately need it as a church, as a family, as an individual. We all have funds and, and resources entrusted to us to steward limited resources and a concern to use them well. How do you give to those in need? What's the process for determining that? I mean, for example, do you say there's no conditions at all? Whoever asks, I'm going to give. Or do you say, I'm only giving to those who are deserving? You have to show that you deserve it. I think we need to be aiming for what I would call grace-centered generosity, guided by wisdom. I mean, I wish we just had some people like a formula and a spreadsheet. Do, 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 They deserve $5 <laughs> or something like that. They deserve five minutes of my time. Do, 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 do. Algorithms, computed. I'm afraid to say that's not how life typically goes, not in God's kingdom. We, we learn, we grow. I, I grew a lot during those years at Teen Challenge in wrestling with my gifting and, and, and the opportunities I had to, to open up a home to some people that a lot of people would say not in my house because what if they steal something? While at the same time learning a lot about what it meant to be a good husband, understanding who my wife was and... I still wrestle with these things. I don't think it's going to end. But one of the elements then that I believe we really need as we work through this is each other. That's why I need people who think differently about it. I need others who have the gift of mercy, who can explain to me when I need to set some boundaries, and people who, who just mercy is way down the list, who are able to say, what you're doing is totally foolish. And maybe I can press against them a little bit and say, well, yeah, well, what matters most to you? Safety? And there's a, di there's a dialogue. Maybe it's more internal <laughs> sometimes. But we are, we're, we're, this is why we are brought into community. There's no lone wolf Christianity. Remember, these beatitudes are given in the plural. We need each other. Compassionate mercy can be multi-layered. There's short-term versus long-term, low commitment versus high commitment. So wisdom is needed. But it's often, I've observed, aided by relationship. I think relationships are key. Deeper commitments require deeper knowledge, and that comes over time through relationships. There's another reason why relationships are so important. Mercy requires, in many cases, standing in the shoes of another person. Or at least seeking to do that. And you can't do that without relationship. There's just something different, like I said, when you go down to Haiti and you're there and you hear Jared talk about what's happening. If you've been there, you've, you've stood on that 
plot of land and you've seen everything and you're moved toward more compassion. And when laws and policies are put in place but you know the person affected by them, you just look differently at it. It's been said the death of a thousand is in the news is a sad story. The death of one friend is a tragedy. Have you heard that saying before? And you know somebody, even if they're obscure and they perish, your heart is moved toward compassion. But a story about a tsunami, maybe for a minute or a couple seconds moves you, but you don't know any of those people. Start with your current relationships and look for ways to be compassionate. And wisdom recognizes that God is after more than just temporary relief. He's after total restoration. And that means change on the part of the mercy receiver, the person who's receiving it, but also the mercy giver. You know, if you're a person of mercy, you're being changed as well in the process of giving it. It's not just about this poor person who I'm going to help. They're also helping you. The first book Tim Keller wrote, you guys may recognize that name. Uh, he's written a lot of books now. was a book called Ministries of Mercy. It was a help to deacons in the church. We have deacons who come along with assistance. And one, one of the quotes that he has in that book is this. The grace of God demands change once it has come to us in our undeserved state. We're held accountable by it. God's mercy comes without conditions but does not proceed without them. What he's trying to unpack there is a sense that none of us is really deserving of God's grace and mercy, but when we enter into the kingdom then, as we move forward, there are things we have to work out about what it looks like. We can't abuse that. There's an obligation that we have, in fact, a constraining obligation to walk in grace and to demonstrate mercy. Let's talk briefly about forgiveness, and this is a shorter treatment. The other side of the coin, forgiveness extended to others in light of the mercy that we have received. As a citizen of God's kingdom, we're duty-bound to extend the forgiveness we've received from God to others. Compassion and forgiveness. And forgiveness is a very complex topic, but here's one thing that we can state pretty simply. We often neglect to see how the depths of God's forgiveness toward us compels us to forgive others. That's important. It, how in the world can you possibly forgive somebody who's hurt you again and again? And I, I, when I say it's complex, it doesn't mean that there are, there's wisdom to boundaries. You don't continue returning to somebody who's abusing you over and over again. But at the same time, there's a challenge offered in the scriptures to forgive again and again and again. How many times do I need to forgive? Again and again and again. Forgiveness extended to others in light. How can we do that? You have to understand how much you've been forgiven. And when you understand the depths, and I think the Beatitudes have led us to this point too, of your sheer reliance on Christ, the absolute forgiveness, the love that extends beyond all boundaries because he is... He's tossed your sins from the, into the, the, the seas and from east to west and that the, the pile of transgressions against him has been erased completely. Then when somebody offends or hurts you, you're in a different position 
to be able to extend that forgiveness. And it's a, it's a growing process, I understand that. And this is what the parable of the unmerciful servant's all about. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, you know there's a, there's a man who, who owes somebody a whole bunch of money. And that guy says, I'm, I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to erase that debt. You know the story, that guy goes out there and sees somebody else who owes him some money after he's been shown mercy, and, and he demands from that person the money that's owed. And, and by comparison, scholars tell us what he owed somebody would be the equivalent of $20 million. That's what he was forgiven. And this other guy owed him $2,000. You had a $20 million debt? What about, forget about $20 million. What if today I said... Nobody here has a mortgage anymore. No mortgage. I've paid it all. You're forgiven. It's, it's released. Who would like that? I think probably all, I mean, I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter to you, but for most of you, you'd be like, that's awesome, that's great. And then you saw somebody over when you were at Walmart who owed you 10 bucks. He said, give me my 10 bucks, dude. And, you, you know, it turns into an altercation because you're trying to get the $10 from him. You are filled with ingratitude. You're like, what? You were just 100 and you want, don't you understand? No, you don't. That's the parable of the unmerciful servant. You've been forgiven so much. And that's what happens in that story. The servant had a legitimate claim on that debt, but in the light of the mercy he received, which was far greater, his claim on that debt needed to be released. If you hold a death grip on grudges and constantly seek what is due to you, especially where you've been wounded, you're in danger. If you have no desire to forgive, you're in danger. And recent offenses and emotional shock might delay the desire. But the desire, the desire needs to arise. And if it doesn't, then the desire to have the desire ought to be present. Pray for that desire. I, I've made reference uh, before to a gal in, uh, when I was in high school whose father had abused her. And she hated him. And she was a new believer. I was a new believer also. And I didn't know she was just sharing some to me how much she hated her father. But she was wrestling with trying to forgive him. And said, I don't even want to pray for him. And the only thing I could think of was to say, well, why don't you pray that you want to pray for him? I can't do that. Okay. Well, why don't you pray that one day you would have a desire to pray to have the desire to forgive him. I, no, I was trying to back it up as far as possible. And she got to the point where she's like, I think I could do that. I don't know the rest of her story. But that might be where you are. Something uh, hurts so deep, you can't even begin to pray about it. And pray that God will give you the desire to pray. That may be need, where you need to start or give you a glimpse of what you've been forgiven. So you can extend it as well. And there's a second part to this. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And some people might think this means you'll only receive mercy if you give it, but that goes against the whole premise that mercy is undeserving. By that standard, none of us would ever receive mercy. 
So we can't attain that. In fact, that's the whole point of why Christ had to come. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Extending mercy then to others, it's not a condition for receiving it, for you can never be deserving, but receiving mercy is a product of extending it. Does that make sense? When you exhibit mercy to others, one of the products is mercy shown to you. You receive it at the very least by understanding a little more the profound mercy extended to you in Christ. What if you show mercy to somebody and they're ungrateful for it? Doesn't that make you mad? Shouldn't they appreciate what I've done for them? Well, when you do that, if you're in that scenario, you're beginning to understand your Lord a little bit better, who extended mercy and wasn't shown gratitude for it. So blessed, this is kind of the same, blessed are those who are merciful. This, they'll be shown mercy. What, you understand the mercy shown to you in Christ even more. You receive a deeper sense of his mercies to you. We're reminded of the mercy received from Christ when we're giving it to others. You walk in small but significant ways in his steps. You can be set free from those gnawing grudges. Wouldn't that be nice, the grudge you've been nursing from that kid who said something to you when you were 10 years old, and you replay that in your mind over and over and think, oh, I've got a great comment for that person now. If I could go back to that moment. You can be set free from that. You can hold on, hold your own rights and demands more loosely. You can be gentle toward those in need. You can demonstrate patience with people who have fallen or have offended you. You can seek to understand before you rush to conclusions when people are in misery. There are got to be countless applications you can draw from this. At work, at home, in marriage, with siblings, in relationships, in the church, with neighbors. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Just a final word about mercy. Receiving and extending God's mercy is actually doxological. At the end of this you know, service, we always have the doxology. It's become one of my favorite things. We sing praises to God. A benediction is the very last thing, okay? Benedictus, a good word as you part. But before that, the doxology. We give praise, doxos, praise to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And mercy postures us well, understanding it, for praise, for doxology. And I say that based on what Paul himself says, kind of summing this all up. Towards the end of his life, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Of whom I am the worst and some of you have heard before, too, that's quite a striking phrase, isn't it? Towards the end of his life, he sees himself as the worst of sinners. Now, surely he was growing more like Christ, but his awareness of the forgiveness given in Christ only grew as he was filled with wisdom. But for that very reason, I was shown, L-O, mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense or unlimited patience 
as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul looks at his own life and says, I received God's mercy as the worst of sinners. And what it leads him to do is praise God now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and doxos, glory forever and ever. Paul's unpacking of the mercies given to him led him to praise. Glory, hallelujah. But for the grace of God, there go I. The mercies of God so lavished upon me. I don't know what to do except to give praise to a God who could do something like that. Save a sinner like me. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that leads us to a life of grace in action and praise to the only God who can actually save us. Now that's the context we need, especially as we leave these doors and meet difficult people who we're called to extend compassion and forgiveness to. Can't do it without the Holy Spirit at work in your mind and heart and soul, applying the gospel and good news of Christ whose unlimited patience, his mercy has been lavished upon you. No wonder then a trademark of a citizen of kingdom of God is a person of mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would make us merciful. I mean, every time we pray these prayers, it, there's that mixture of excitement about the desire to walk in your ways, but also attention because we understand what that means. It could, it could mean that we're going to show compassion to people in need or extend the forgiveness to people that don't deserve it, that deserve something different. That's exactly what you did for us. So in praying that we'd be merciful, give us eyes to see what that looks like and the perseverance to be able to, to do what's hard and your spirit's presence to work in us in a way that we cannot manufacture on our own. Thank you for this trustworthy saying that deserve full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. May that reality lead us to praise. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I want to give a couple minutes again. Um, in part because we, we skipped July for Stories of Grace and to see if some others would like to contribute that we're unable to do so.